I just wanted to start quickly with the just kind of the Memorial Day weekend piece. Do we have any any peeps who have served or are actively serving in the military? Anybody? Yeah. Oh yeah, Paul. Yes, Paul was actually my roommate in college. Thank you for thank you for your service, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and anybody who's just a military family, you get it. Yeah, I mean, you guys experienced sacrifice as well. So thank you for even just the family sacrifice. Appreciate it. Um, seriously, um, we, we experience freedom. We're living in freedom because of the sacrifice of many. So if you are part of a military family, thank you for that. Um, to our Facebook viewers, welcome. Um, if you're jumping on now or are you jumping on later, um, love to having you with us. It's my great joy to welcome you today to City Reach LA. My name is Josh Houston. I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm eager to bring the word today. And to start, here's what I, what I hope you walk away with. This is the thread. This is what I hope you walk away with. You will encounter more profound meaning in life when your efforts are aligned with Jesus's. You will encounter more profound meaning in life when your efforts are aligned with Jesus's. Today, I want to talk about my daughter, Aria. And then I want to talk about 12-year-old Jesus. And then I want to talk about alignment. First, Aria. If you know me well, you know I love coffee. Um, not merely caffeine, but the, the craft of brewing specialty coffee. Artisan coffee has become this like family passion of ours. Um, Saturdays are often days that we go out into the city, find a new coffee shop, or we go find a place that we already know and love and visit it and drink coffee as a family. Um, most weekdays, even weekends, I wake up and I make a brew, and both my wife will come up to me and my three-year-old daughter will come up to me and say, hey, can you make us some as well? I love brewing, and while I love brewing alone, I deeply enjoy bringing Aria into the process. Uh, explaining how the grinder works, explaining the differences in brew methods, why we need to weigh out the differences in, in everything and the importance of temperature, all, like all of it. I love kind of explaining because she comes in with this, this curious, inquisitive spirit about the whole thing. And, and even more than teaching her a craft that I'm passionate about, I love when she contributes to the process, when she joins with me in this sacred and holy rhythm. Um, the other day, actually, it was, like, it was Saturday morning, Friday morning, I woke up and I was making a brew and she's like, can I help? I was like, yes. So, you know, I helped, like she poured the beans into the grinder. She pushed the scale button for me. She was like part of it, right? But the truth is, Aria has no clue what she's doing. Absolutely no clue. And if I let her at it, left to herself, she would not only not make coffee, she would probably break my stuff. My very expensive quality gear. And the truth is, I can make a blooming good cup of coffee without her. I don't need her help. <laughs> in fact, I could probably make a better cup of coffee without her help. But for me, bringing her into it, it's, it's about the relationship. It's about the joy of doing this together. It's far more about the intimacy that's being developed than the product of the brew that's, that's being formed. And, and further, what I hope she realizes eventually as we, as we continue to move forward and like as she's learning this, is that when we're making coffee, she'll actually experience better results, i.e. A, a, a better tasting cup of coffee, when her efforts are aligned with mine. Because left to herself, even with great intention, she's going to break things. She will unintentionally become this passionate instrument of destruction. Because <laughs> it's really expensive, a lot of glass, <laughs> a lot of like really expensive stuff. But when she, if she can learn to align her efforts with me, it means we're going to get a fabulous tasting cup because I know what I'm doing. And we're going to enjoy the process more because our efforts won't be in competition with each other. They won't be in opposition to each other. 
And I think of things like the value of our time spent together, the enjoyment of actually drinking. She drinks a little bit. We don't, some of you guys are like, you give a three-year-old a cup of coffee? No, like, we give her like this much. But actually enjoying it, she's like, I love, I love when she says it. She's like, yeah, this tastes fruit forward. I'm like, oh, yes, you get it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the significance of learning into a craft like specialty brewing, she gets exposed to all of this if she comes in paying attention to my agenda. Profound meaning simply by showing up and following my efforts. But she misses all this if she comes in with her own agenda. Meaning. I believe meaning is what so many are searching for, so many are looking for. Purpose, significance, this overwhelming value. This is the pursuit for value in life. What, what kind of universe is this? What kind of universe are we living in? And what, what role do I play? What part do I play in this thing? Because this, this passionate exploration of meaning, what it does is it, is it develops this ambition in our guts, especially in a city like a, we want, in it, like L.A. We want to work. We want to create. We want to experience. We want to express ourselves so that maybe one day this whole thing will make sense. It's like, it's like people are pushing forward in hopes that meaning is going to pop out of it all. Maybe one day I'll understand how I fit into this whole thing. And here's what's Here's what growing up is teaching me, though. I've realized that without much effort, I can easily, I can enter a room, I can enter a relationship, a crisis, a cause with an agenda. And it's most often a good one, but it's an agenda nonetheless. And with good intentions, I break things. Unintentionally, I can break things. I can believe my efforts are virtuous, that that they're causing wholeness, but in reality, my efforts might be in fact, working in opposition to what actually needs to happen in this moment. For example, as a pastor, I've had to become very familiar with, with grief. I've had to become very familiar with grief and the role it plays in our lives as humans. Because generally speaking, there was, there's always going to be someone in our church grieving something. There's, there's always going to be the death of a loved one, the end of a cherished relationship, getting fired, maybe even just the completion of, of, a, of a valued and loved season of their life. And in short... Like the, the idea of grief is, is, it's essentially saying, learning how to say goodbye well to things. It's like nothing lasts. Nothing does. Jesus lasts. That's it. Everything else is kind of on its way out, really. I mean, we, have, we hold on to things for longer, but grief is learning how to say goodbye well to things. And, and it's a, it's a skill set that like healthy souls know how to do. do how, they know how to do it well. It's, a, it's essential for us. Grief is, in fact, God's gift to us to learn how to say bye to things. That when we have to say goodbye to a person or an opportunity or experience or a season that we deeply value, it's crucial for our health, for our wholeness, that we know how to mourn that loss. But the temptation as a pastor is for me to come in and save the day. It's to protect someone from pain. It's to to protect someone from the suffering. That if you're experiencing something painful, I want to get you out of there. I want to throw a Bible verse at you or throw some pithy adage at you to help you quickly move around sorrow or under sorrow or grow over it, but not to go through it. But if you're familiar with the human soul, with human emotion, with the human psyche, you know we need to grieve. You have to. If you want to be healthy, you have to. So my saving somebody from grief can actually be harming them. So just because I have good intentions doesn't mean wholeness is occurring. Just because my motives are altruistic doesn't mean I'm helping cause what actually needs to happen right now. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've experienced just working your butt off for something. A relationship, a job, a passion project, a hobby, 
And after it was done, after it was completed, something inside of you felt like what was supposed to happen didn't happen. The product is done and it's good, but what was actually supposed to happen didn't, it wasn't fulfilled. Or, or some good was caused, but I felt like I missed something as I was going through it. Did I, did I miss what was, what was supposed to happen, what was actually going on? Even with good intentions, we can easily miss what is most needed in a moment. Two weeks ago was Mother's Day, and I applauded Mary, the mother of Jesus, for her commitment to Jesus. She was a great mom. She's an incredible woman. There's a reason God entrusted her to raise the Savior of the world. Like, she's incredible. She was brilliant. She supported Jesus. She had his back all the way to the end. And today, I want to show a time where she failed, where her efforts revealed how little she actually knew was going on. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke or your Bible apps. Luke is in the New Testament. It's the third book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's one of the Gospels. We've got Bibles on the tables spread out throughout the room. If, if you want to hold one, if you like hold, I like holding a book. I like smelling the pages, you know, smelling the holy. If you don't have a Bible, you can keep one of those. Um, and I'll have the text up on the screen here in case you want to follow me or you're just plain lazy. This is Luke 2, starting in verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they began looking for him among the relatives and their friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? They did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is a fun story. <laughs> I want to walk you through a little what's going on here. So every year, Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. This was the major feast celebrated by devout Jews. So, of course, Mary and Joseph are going to be there. They're going to make their way. And it was customary to make this pilgrimage in large groups. So Mary and Joseph were likely part of a large caravan, family, friends, acquaintances in the town, as they set out on this 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And Scripture says Jesus is 12 years old at this point which interestingly makes this the only biblical account of Jesus' youth. I find that fascinating. Like, I'm, I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus about this one. Like, what else happened when in your teenage years and stuff? Like, anybody else interested in that? Like, I'm curious. I want to know. So the caravan heads out to Jerusalem, and after seven days of celebration, which was what it was, they began their voyage home. And a day into their journey, Mary and Joseph realized they can't find Jesus. Now, I think we give them a hard time for this. Like, you lost the Messiah? For real? Like, it's not like it's your punk nephew or something. We're talking about the word made flesh. 
This is Yahweh in a skin bag. This is the Logos. You've lost him? However, like if, we're, if I really think, just in context, it would not have been difficult to lose track of a young boy and such a large group of travelers. Mary and Joseph probably assumed Jesus was with the other or with, he, was, he was with relatives or he was with some friends. And my guess, he's a, he's a reliable kid too. Probably, right? I mean, you could probably trust him because he's God and all. In any case, on the first evening of their homeward journey, they notice he's missing. Now, I was just reading through this a lot. I was studying. I was praying. I'm reading through the story going like, man, this sounds really familiar. I'm just wondering even if some of you are sitting here feeling like, I feel like this story got jacked from the Bible and remade somewhere. I'm wondering if like some wheels are turning right now. You know what this is? This is Home Alone. Just change the Passover to Christmas vacation. You remember, right? The McAllister family, they're going on Christmas vacation, taking a big family, right? They wake up late. They're throwing all their crap together really fast. They get outside to count heads. And you could blame, the, like, the purpose that's the responsible for the crisis in this film is Mitch Murphy, that neighbor boy who gets counted in place of Kevin, right? She's like, don't count the heads. And then Kevin wakes up, right? He's in the attic. He, he didn't want to sleep with Fuller, right, because he pees the bed. And Kevin's up in the attic. He wakes up late. Family's gone, and he's walking around the house, and he's like, I made my family disappear, right? He's doing the eyebrows thing, right? And he's like, and then he goes on a party throughout the house. It's so good, right? But then you go to the shot on the plane with the parents, and Kevin's mom's like, I, I feel like we forgot something. And, and Kevin's dad's like, it's the garage door. I left the garage door open. And she's like, no, no, I don't think that's it. And then what does she scream? Kevin, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's so good, right? And I can see Mary and Joseph doing this. They're just like riding home, you know, and Mary's like, Joseph, I feel like we forgot something. And Joseph's like, I forgot to shut the donkey gate in Jerusalem. That's She's like, no, I don't think that's what it is. And then, Jesus, right? It's kind of probably the only appropriate time you could say Jesus' name if you messed up, maybe. I mean, they must have felt so bad in this moment. They must have felt so scared in this moment. Like, we lost the Messiah? Yahweh's going to be so pissed off at us right now. So they head back to Jerusalem. Like, they turn around. Let's go. We got to go find him. They backtrack. The search party went on for three days. They finally find him in the temple. What's he doing? He's, he's sitting amongst the teachers, and he's, he's ardently engaged in conversation with them. And I just find this piece fascinating because his role here is one principally as a learner. He's a listener. He's asking questions. He's gleaning from the experienced ones. And I think, like, as I was just kind of playing with this thing, two things initially stand out about this for me. First is that Jesus is learning. I mean, think about that. He's, what hap- what's happening is he's developing into the Savior we now know him to be. So we tend to move past this so quickly. I, like, we just make the assumption that, that infant Jesus was omniscient, that toddler Jesus was all-powerful, that he was all-knowing. But this story seems to commun- communicate other ways. This, this story is, is showing that Jesus is learning into who he is. He's growing into who he is. Because we don't know when Jesus realized, when, you know, the, the conversation between Mary and Jesus, we don't know what that looked like and, and when that happened. But, and we don't know when Jesus is like, I'm God, right? And I now have to learn into this. Like, we don't know what that looks like. But at this point, the flower is blooming. He's becoming Jesus, the Savior of the world. But there's a second piece that stands out. It's that this 12-year-old kid is keeping up with rabbis. I mean, this is akin to a middle, middle schooler talking physics with astrophysicists. 
and like keeping up in conversation. There's something truly extraordinary about this boy, so much so that everybody watching is astounded by what he knows. They're astounded by him keeping up in this conversation. And this is where Mary and Joseph enter the scene, and when they find him, mom lets him have it. And I think parents can kind of relate here, right? If you have kids, you can kind of relate. Mary's like, why have you done this to us? We were worried sick about you. That's probably like, what, like the loose translation, right? She's probably saying, we were worried sick about you, because that's what American parents say, right? Because here's the thing. It wasn't like, I mean, we were just at Disneyland. It's not like... It's not like you're in a huge crowd at Disneyland walking down Main Street and I can't find my kid anymore. You're like, where's my kid, right? This is more like, like, like the kid intentionally stayed back at the castle because he wanted to talk pyrotechnics with the, fi- with the firework engineers, right? Like that's, it was like intentional. And, I, and so, so Mary's like, why did you do this to us? And I love Jesus' response. He, he turns a question back at her. I mean, he's already rabbying her. At 12 years old, answering with a question, what do you mean, why have I done this to you? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be here? Other translations say, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? God, this is so beautiful. You see, in this day, in this culture, there was nothing more natural than a son taking up his father's business. And in Judaism, a boy began to learn his father's trade at 12 years old, around 12 years old. Oh, look, this is so good. Of course I'd be in my father's house. Of course I'd be about my father's business. Where else would I be, Mom? What else would I be doing? And these are the first recorded words of Jesus in Scripture, talking about his partnership with his father's work. And if you're familiar with Jesus and the story of Jesus, this theme just kind of continues. It continues to roll. He says things like, I don't do anything by myself. I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I see what, I, what my father wants me to say. At 12, he's jumping into his father's trade, the craft of redeeming the world. It's so beautiful. And then Luke notes, she ma- he makes sure to note that Mary and Joseph didn't get it. They, did, like, they could not comprehend what happened right now. Once again, Mary's perplexed by God. Once again, she's caught off guard, probably alongside the countless other times. I mean, I, I want to talk with her. Like, how many times were you just like, oh, my gosh, I'm just raising God right now. This is so mind-blowing. These moments of awe and wonder. Hopefully one day all this is going to make sense. Because what a wild experience raising Jesus. And then we see them back in Nazareth where Jesus would grow up. He would grow up and mature into adulthood. And where Mary, she treasured this stuff in her heart. She pondered over the greatness of this mystery. I mean, I could see her like, I'm not exactly sure what went down. I don't know what this whole thing was. Forgetting Jesus, finding him in the temple. He's with the teachers. He's with the rabbis. He's, he's having conversation with them. He's learning from them. I let Jesus know he was worried, then he let me know I missed what was going on. What was happening? And how do I not miss that again? Like, she's, she's pondering this over in her heart. She's treasuring them, even though she didn't get it. And there's, there's so much going on here, but what I want to land on today is the fact that Mary and Joseph forgot Jesus. How did they forget Jesus? How did they leave Jerusalem without him? They did it because they had their minds fixed on something important. We've got to get home from the festival. All the while, Jesus was up to something more important. His father's work. They had their agenda but it was in opposition to Jesus's. And even when they find him, 
They still missed it. We have somewhere to get, Jesus. Let's go. Come on, let's go. And Jesus is like, I'm up to something here, Mom. How about you stick around and find out what it is? I think, I think the fantastic challenge that's set before us, that's just lurking in these pages, is like Mary to learn to treasure, to ponder over the mystery of Jesus' work in our life. Because the truth is, like Mary, we all have this incredible capacity to forget Jesus. It is essential to pause, to contemplate what Jesus is up to, what he's doing in our lives. Because even after 2,000 years of church history and biblical study, it doesn't do away with our need for this kind of reflection. Because in every one of us, we will find agendas, we will find plans and dreams and goals that may be wholesome, they may be beneficial, and they may even bring glory to God. Yet our efforts are working in opposition to what Jesus is actually doing here right now. No doubt, we all have our idea of a preferred future. I do too. We make plans. You're driven by some level of ambition. But how often do we stop and ask the question, what, what might Jesus be up to here right now? Jesus, you're about your Father's work. How is that manifesting in my life? Or maybe to think through the opposite. What are you so focused on that you've, lo- you've lost sight of what Jesus is focused on? What's taken central? What's taken the center stage when Jesus has something else intended to take center stage during this? What's robbing your attention of what truly, truly matters in this moment, even if it seems good or beneficial? And this is why the writer of Hebrews later instructed us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. You see, we have this real enemy, this real enemy of our souls, and he's this spiritual being that is on mission to destroy the wholeness for which we were built. And he knows the more in tune you are with the work of Jesus in your life, the more in tune you are with the author of your faith, with the perfecter of your faith, the less chance he has of destroying your wholeness. He knows that. So he wants to keep your eyes fixed on other things, on problems, on anxiety, on money, on lack of money, on your jerk of a boss, on unforgiveness, on the trauma you went through. But the writer of Hebrews says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's at work in your life. He's redeeming you. He's mending you. He's healing you. And the development of your wholeness will be in direct relation to the direction of your vision. I'm going to put this up here, and I think this is really important that we get this. I'm going to say this again. The development of your wholeness will be in direct relation to the direction of your vision. You being made more whole is determined on where you're looking. We've got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because here's what we tend to do. We tend to invite Jesus into our lives. And you might be like, well, isn't that the point of Christianity? Isn't that the point of following Jesus? Invite him into our lives. Ask him to bless our work and anoint our efforts and make our labors glorify God. No, that's not it. The truth is, it's quite arrogant to approach life and spirituality that way, actually. To assume I actually know what needs to get done. It's like Aria making coffee. She has no clue what needs to happen in this moment. Sure, she has good intentions. Sure, she's seen me make coffee before. And sure, she's turned on the grinder before. But her instincts, her efforts, they cannot be trusted right now. <laughs> to them, Left to themselves, they can't be trusted. Not yet. One day, she'll be ready. She probably thinks that day is tomorrow. For now, 
Arya, follow my instincts. Follow my efforts. You see, I assume I know what needs to be accomplished in my life. Therefore, I make plans and I effort, even unto the glory of God. <clears throat> but our default setting is to do this rather than ask Jesus, which direction should I be putting my efforts? And this isn't to say, I mean, this isn't pivoting or positioning Jesus, what are you up to versus free will? I, I mean, this is a both-and conversation. Of course, Jesus is raising, God is, he's raising children who he can trust to make decisions. God wants us to be able to go live our life in participation with him. But sometimes, just sprinting down the free will road, what we end up doing is just saying, well, I'm just going to live the life I want then. I'm not even going to ask what God is up to. And sometimes our efforts are just completely different than what God is doing. And I just want to bring us back to the first part of this whole process is saying, God, where, where are you at work? Because you've been working a lot longer than I have on better initiatives than I have. So I want to be in, in line with that. I want to be in touch with that. You see, we were designed, we were calculated uniquely in eternity before time began, before God spoke the world into existence. You were dreamed up. You were invented, you were intended, you were caused for a unique purpose, but we miss out on that purpose. We, we overshoot profound meaning when our efforts are not aligned with how we've been designed. So like you can look at it this way, the church, is, it's been called the body of Christ for a long time. Like Paul used this analogy, this metaphor of a body. It's made up of a bunch of parts that fulfill unique roles. So, so if, if a body has all these different parts that are attempting and working in ways that they weren't designed, it's going to waste a lot of effort. Even with pure motives. If the body parts aren't doing what they're intended to do, you're going to waste effort. So, like, how challenging would it be to write a love letter or a poem to someone with your nose? I mean, maybe it's possible. It's a great cause. <laughs> But it's going to be really challenging. You're going to try very hard. And it's like, how about you use your nose to do what it was intended to do? So, why don't you, Mr. Nose, why don't you smell things and entrust the writing to the hand, right? Or how successful would you be if you wanted to help your friend out on moving day using just your eyes? Hey, can you help me out with this couch? Yeah, sure. Right? Even with good intentions, you're going to waste a lot of effort. You're not going to get anything done. And you're not going to get invited back for the next moving day either, right? You were designed uniquely in eternity, and Jesus was there. He took part in the invention of your soul so he knows you best, better than you know you. It would do you well to ask him how to use your efforts because you're part of the body. You were designed to do something. And if you just run off in whatever direction any desires are leading you, you might be working in opposition to what you were designed to do and waste a whole lot of effort and energy trying to do it. And the beauty of this is that Jesus is not just a spectator. He's actively involved in your life. He's moving it forward. He's molding it towards redemption and wholeness and, re and renewal, not only for you but the lives of others through you. But when we forget Jesus our work ends up working in opposition to Jesus's op often. So at a foundational level, Christianity is about alignment. I love this, this imagery of, like, if you had a hollow lead pipe and you toss it into a moving river, sure, it's in the river, but if it lands perpendicular to the river, river's going this way, hollow pipe lands this way, there's friction happening. 
the flow of the river is hitting this thing. It's having to go around. It's having to go under and over. Yeah, sure, there's, there's water in the pipe, but there's conflict regarding the flow. And similarly, like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I'm in God, yeah. But I might be out of alignment so that the flow of what God is doing is in opposition to my alignment with him. There's conflict. There's friction with what he's attempting to do. So the goal of following Jesus is to align our hearts, to align our wills, to align our minds and our spirits so that the flow of what God is doing goes through. There's no friction. There's no conflict here. There's no bouncing over or under. It's just movement right through me. So when our passions, when our ambitions and our dreams and our intentions, when they're aligned with God's, our efforts are moving with the tide, actually causing real good. And then we will experience profound meaning, like real value and significance at deeper levels than we could have imagined because our work is in participation with our design. Meaning. It makes life colorful and textured and fluid and vibrant, but it comes as a result of alignment. I deeply believe this. You will encounter more profound meaning in life when your efforts are aligned with Jesus's. So I'm going to call the worship team back up. They're going to go into a time of response in worship through song. I'd like for you to imagine with me a church like ours and a city like ours becoming a community less focused on our goals than we are on Jesus' goals. What would it look like if our ambition to see Jesus' work done was stronger than our ambition for success in the city? What meaning we would experience, what joy, what significance would result from our efforts and the resulting impact it would have on the city around us? And the truth is, we could be that community. (laughs) That's my charge for you today. To allow yourself to lay down your goals and your dreams, and your ambitions, not to get rid of them, not to toss them out, but lay them down just long enough for Jesus to show you if they're they're aligned with his. So we're going to go into a moment of response worship. Because the truth is, God has been working in this room before we got here. He was working on your hearts before you even got in your car to come here today. And so much of what following Jesus is about is just saying, what are you doing? And I say yes to that, God. Jesus, what are you up to? I want to say yes to that. I have forgotten you often. (laughs) I've been doing wonderful things. I've been moving forward, but I forgot you. So I want to come back to you in this moment. And he doesn't shame us for it. He's not frustrated about it. He just says, I'm about my father's business. I'm about real good, about real redemption. Would you partner with me? Would you align your heart and your will and your spirit with the work I'm doing in you and through you? So I don't know what you need right now from God. It might be completely related to this. It might be something on a distant planet that you just like, God, I need you to meet me in a completely different way. So maybe you need this song sung over you. Maybe you just need to sit in your seat and worship the Lord in quiet or stand with your arms raised or come down here and get on your knees before God and say, I'm sorry for the stuff that happened this week. I want to invite up two of our leaders right now too. Maybe you need someone to come just stand with you and pray with you 
Maybe you're like, I need to ask God for, for something. I need, I need prayer right now. And I'm not even sure I have the strength or the courage or the words to put it into, 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 into action right now. So I want someone to stand with me and pray with me. These two are here for that. Maybe you just need to come into contact with the holiness of God. So I just want to give you space and permission and room to encounter the divine that's at work in this room right now. So Jesus, we do that. We say yes to your plans. We, we confess that all too quickly we forget you, that we move forward with our goals, our dreams, our ambition, often with good intentions, forgetting, though, that you might be at work somewhere else. So we come back to you in this moment. We say we want to pay attention to the work that you're doing. So, so give us eyes to see that. Give us ears to hear that. Give us hearts discerning to know where you're at work in us and through us. I pray for your kingdom to come in this room right now, Jesus.